Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book in the New Testament, to chapter 1, beginning in verse 57. And uh, if you're brand new with us, we are um, moving through the opening narratives or stories of the birth of Jesus in anticipation for Christmas. And we are at this point, beginning in verse 57, that talks about the birth of John, or the birth of John that we know as the Baptist. I'm going to begin by reading this, and then praying, and then we're going to uh, look at the message this morning. So if I could ask you, in honor of Holy Scripture, if you would stand with me as I read. Beginning in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, uh, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by that name. And they made signs to his father inquiring um, what he wanted to to be called. And for those who weren't here, God made Zechariah mute, his father mute, so he couldn't speak because he didn't believe he was going to have a son. Picking up in verse 62, and they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted to be called, and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John, and they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all those neighbors, on their neighbors, and all these things were talked about um, through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our forefathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel, such as the reading of Holy Scripture. You can take your seats. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we, we thank you for, um, for your salvation and the gift of your mercy. We're grateful for the gift of your revelation, the fact that we can hold within our hands um, the very words of God. Father, I pray that you would allow your voice to be heard by every heart in this room, where we may have hardness of heart or a misunderstanding of who you are, I pray that you would clarify and reveal. Father, I pray that you would accompany me as I use my gift, prevent me from speaking things that are misleading, and I pray that you would just guard my heart as I speak and allow your people that you love, who are gathered in this room, that you gave your life for, 
Allow them to know that you love them. Allow them to know that you are God over history, all of it, from the beginning to the end, and that you sit on your throne and nothing that happens is either by accident or not for the good of your people. Help us believe that. In Christ's name, amen. So I don't know how many of you have seen uh, Despicable Me 1 and 2. All right, uh, animated movies. Um, I'm still fortunate to have a young guy in my, my household. My wife would probably tell you that young guy's me. Um, but I, I, I love the movies, you know, um, with the, the Minions and Gru. I love Gru, whether he has a, a Russian or a Ukrainian accent. A, a delicious line of jams and jellies. It's just, every time I hear it, I love that. Um, both of them, magnificent, well worth the watching animated movies. But our favorite parts, of course, are, are the Minions. And I'm sure you've seen pictures of them. They look like swollen yellow Tic Tacs with eyes and, and hands, right? That's kind of what they look like. And they're the comedy relief through the whole thing. Um, our favorite as a family is Kevin, right? Kevin the Minion. Well, excited about the Minions because we saw uh, uh, Despicable Me 1 and 2. Um, this last summer, we went to see uh, Minions the movie. It's all about Minions, right? So we're sitting there. We watched it in Napa. And the opening scenes of the movie, there are these little yellow dots, right? And... Um, you only come to find out later as the, as the scene progresses that these are actually cells, yellow cells. And as time goes on, they begin to multiply and mutate and, and gravitate towards these other creatures that are multiplying and mutating. And, uh, and through the scene of the movie, they end up coming ashore as minions to find an evil master to, uh, to serve. Uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex, uh, let's see, some of the other ones, um, Dracula, Napoleon Bonaparte that kind of thing, right? So anyway, I didn't really care for the movie, to be honest with you. But I thought, you know, so they introduced the story. Now, the story really didn't start until, I don't know, five minutes into the movie in which the main plot is to go and find a a new evil master. But they introduced the story with a backstory. And that backstory, of course, implies evolution. And I was thinking to myself, like, really? Like, you, you take these wonderful, funny little creatures, and you give it a backstory that suggests, again, that the big story in which their small episode or story or plot line um, develops is, is evolution. And as, in case you haven't noticed, it's, it's like everywhere, right? I shouldn't be surprised. I should just go, ah, yep, that's Hollywood, right? Scholars call that kind of a grand storyline a meta-narrative. Meta-narrative, M-E-T-A, narrative, you know what that is, story. A grand storyline, a grand overarching history, if you will, that explains all the small stories underneath it. Meta-narrative. Another way of thinking about a meta-narrative is a grand idea, an idea that explains the world, that explains existence as we know it, and offers a solution. Sometimes those meta-narratives are overt, like the theory of evolution. It's rather overt. It's like, how do we begin? Big bang. How do we end? I think a big collapse. (laughs) Big bang, big collapse. How do we begin to end? But others are more implicit, that we buy into almost unconsciously, a, a grand idea that explains existence and offers a solution. One of the big ones in the 20th century was Marxist communism. 
The belief that we can progress as humans, but along particular lines. The belief that the problem with the world has to do with distribution of wealth. And therefore, to fix the world, you have to alter how you deal with wealth. And the idea being, if you can do that, then we're going to create a utopia on Earth, and everybody's going to live happily ever after. That was a grand idea. That was a, a meta-narrative that people lived for, they fought for, they, I mean, you know the history. I and mean, it's a big deal. And just so I state it, um, clearly, meta-narratives are massively powerful. They motivate us. They give us a sense of who we are. They color our worldview. They motivate us. Um, all of those things. Well, that was, you know, over there in, in, in Asia and Europe. Well, we have our own narrative, our meta-narrative in the West, that most of us have bought into, not even realizing we bought into it. Because it's very different. We, too, believe, that is the meta-narrative of our American culture, we, too, believe in human progress, but along completely different lines. That we believe, this is kind of the undercurrents of what we believe, we believe that we can make progress with the aid of science, uh, free market capitalism, and the spread of democracy. And with those things going out into the world, we can make the world a much better place and everyone will live happily ever after. You can't deny that we're trying to spread that stuff to the world. Without ever stopping to say, wait a second, is this true? Now, laying both of those things out, both believe in human progress, but along very different lines and believe that both can achieve some level of success of fixing things without realizing that, and, and you and I, I did, I'll just speak for myself, bought into it. Because when I was young growing up, I used to always think, capitalists, good. Communists, evil, right? I, 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 I venture to say you probably felt that way too. And then I went to Russia and met communist people and realized these people aren't evil. They're impoverished, but they weren't evil. That both of these things, both of these meta-narratives, at the end of the day, one, are very powerful. They motivate us to go out into the world. They motivate us to make decisions. But both of them fail massively in terms of what's wrong. The problem's not with wealth. That's fundamentally not our problem. And by the way, did either one of those fix our problem? You look around today in society, it's like, oh yeah, we live happily, happily ever after in this place. <laughs> no. Both are jacked because the problem does, it does not, um, the problem is not in the system. The problem is in the hearts of the people, right? That's the fundamental problem. And, and neither one of those meta-narratives deal with that fact. We, as I said, this is powerful. You're, what, what you believe in your soul to be the grand story colors everything you do, how you see yourself, how you see others, and your future. We as Christians have a different meta-narrative that I think, if taken to heart, is far more powerful. And it does fix the human heart. It does deal with the human situation. Only... Um, I enjoy the author Michael Hart Horton, and he has cautioned Christians from using the word meta-narrative because it implies an idea disconnected from history. When our meta-narrative is, is, is rooted in actual history, 
So he came up with the phrase or name, the word, instead of meta-narrative, he calls it the mega-narrative. The mega-narrative, or just the, the mega-story. And we have a mega-story that is, or at least holds out the potential of being the most powerful thing in your life and in our world. Now, what does that have to do with the birth of John the Baptist? What I'd like to show to you, the story is, 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 is fairly easy to understand, so I'm not going to go through the chronology of the story. I'd rather like to point out to you that in this story, and in particular, when Zachariah, the father, finally gets, um, is able to use his voice again, after nine months of not being able to say anything, he had a lot to say, um, bursts forth in poetic song. You'll notice in your translation, that part where Zechariah speaks, bless the Lord, and goes on and on and on. It's probably um, centered, which means it's, it's a form of poetry. At least it is in, in my translation. But what he, he expresses about the birth of his own son has everything to do with this mega-narrative. It's a blessing of God, of Yahweh, for what he has done in fulfilling his mega-narrative. Narrative, And certain aspects of that, if you will, mega story uh, come to light that I find and we should find deeply encouraging. Not just encouraging, but it should ground us as people in a very um, confusing time where all these meta-narratives are are asking or are begging for our allegiance. One of the aspects of this mega-narrative that you find in this text is the mega-story of God unfolds according to the certainty of his promise. The certainty of his promise. There's no way of understating the importance, the determinative power of God's word. Um, by, the, by the word of his mouth, the heavens were made, and by the word of his mouth, the new creation will be brought into existence. Um, but his promise in particular is what God said back in time would take place. And this chapter as a whole, as well as the text of Zechariah's song, brings that out. The certainty of God's promise. Like I said, one sense the chapter itself just says it over and over and over again. Hey, John, your elderly wife is going to have a baby. Boom, it happens. Fulfilled. Promise delivered. Promise fulfilled. Mary, as a virgin, you're going to have a baby despite the fact that you are a virgin. Boom. What God promised, he fulfilled. And when Zechariah offers his hymn of praise to the Lord, he draws our attention to those ancient promises that were, you know, kind of at the formative stages of God's grand mega story and says, this is what's happening. God is fulfilling what he promised. The underlined sections uh, are the the sections that draw our attention to God's prophetic and promises. He says, verse 70, As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Verse 72. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath, that is a verbal declaration or promise, that he swore to our father Abraham. Like way back when, God made this promise and we are seeing the fulfillment of this promise because God's promises are certain. In fact... I think from one vantage point, you could say that the whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, traces the indomitable certainty of those those promises. 
indomitable. They can't be changed. They can't be stopped. When mankind kind of falls into a rebellious violence in Genesis 6, it doesn't stop the promise that God's going to send a seed that's going to deliver us. Um, Not a flood. A flood doesn't stop it. Pharaoh doesn't stop it. Famines don't stop it. Empires don't stop it. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't stop it. The sin of God's own people can't stop the promise from coming to fruition. Even death itself can't stop the promise. The idea being what God has said will happen. That means human history as we know it is not being moved by random forces. It's being moved by the will of God who's bringing to fruition what he promised a long time ago. Now, so you're like, okay, what, what, what difference does that theology make in my life? I think it makes every bit of difference if we believe it. Because what it means is, an aside, I think there's a lot of our young people, even in the church, who have bought into the evolutionary meta-narrative. Don't even know it. Which explains why they feel so lost and so without meaning. Because they are, whether they know it or not, believing the wrong story. Whereas, if this is true, and our future is guaranteed by the word and promise of God, what that means is that ultimately the fate of our planet and the fate of our humanity does not lie in the hands of random natural forces. It means that the future of our humanity, the future of this planet, is not in the hands of those who wield science, free market capitalism, and the spread of democracy. It means that our future is guaranteed because God has promised and so will appear and so will be fulfilled. That's what it means. And like I said, that's, that's massively important for us to know. Our future is guaranteed, and the, the future is a gloriously awesome one. Ends in salvation and judgment. And just as God has made promises in the Bible and they've come to fruition, so the final promises will come to fruition. And, um, and that's a guarantee. We don't live in a hopeless universe. We live in a universe where God has already said what the end of the story is going to be. <sighs> I was reading uh, some, in terms of application, I was, I was reading some of the things that some of our more secular politicians were saying about conservative Christianity, and, and this came to mind. Um, I don't know if you've heard the phrase, uh, the right side of history, in quotes. You can look it up and you can connect it to politicians. I won't name any. Uh, but the idea being, history has judged and conservative Christianity has lost. That is... The right side of history is, well, we know that really God does not exist. Um, that there is no such thing as the supernatural, only the natural. And on the basis of that, therefore, our Christian morality or Christian morality is obsolete and no longer necessary. That's, that's the right side of history. So if you're going to be a conservative Christian who, conservative I think just basically means you be the, believe the Bible is God's word and it is the, the foundation of your understanding of the whole world, including yourself. Um, that means that um, they're saying that we lost. Well, what we have to remember in those times 
when it seems like our Christian influence in society is waning, at least here in the West, and we seem on the wrong side of history. And I think some of our kids are growing up thinking, yeah, we're on the wrong side of history because we're quote-unquote losing the battle. We have to remember that God moves history according to the certainty of his promise. And there's a promise out there that it will be fulfilled. And you know what that promise is? That someday, when the king returns, every knee will bow. Every. doesn't make a difference whether you're a secularist or a believer, whether you're a Muslim or Christian. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every. And when that happens, well, who's going to be on the wrong side of history then? See? Well, it's going to be a completely different show. But, but you can see how when believing in this mega story, that it has a particular ending that will come into being because God spoke it and promised it. Promised it so, period, it's going to happen. That's... Uh, that gives us courage to know that we're not on the wrong side of history. Second thing that comes out in this is that the mega story of God centers on Jesus and results in total deliverance. Now you're thinking, man, Dan's always got to talk about this centering on Jesus stuff. It's like beating a drum over and over and over again. Can't we talk about something different? The answer, of course, and I hope you believe this, I hope we believe this, is that um, if Christ is not the center of our church, if he's not the center of our marriages, if he's not the center of history and not the central subject of the Bible, then this isn't Christian. And if I'm not talking about it, I shouldn't be a pastor. But the text centers God's mega story on Jesus, which results in total deliverance. Now, it's this part's interesting. I just want you to think through, if you were to be in uh, Zachariah's shoes. The song, and I'm not going to reread the whole thing. The song that he breaks out in, spirit-inspired song, it's mostly about Jesus. Which is, is just kind of ironic because, I mean, in the story that we just read, here's an Elderly man with an elderly woman probably wanted to have kids early on in marriage, but couldn't have kids, and at some point probably gave up the hope of ever having kids when they saw the wrinkles and lines and realized we're too old to have kids. All of a sudden, he gets a word that he's having a kid, and oh, he's holding a boy. If you were in that, in those shoes, you probably would have just been, wow, I, I can't believe it, look, I have a baby. So he has a baby for, you know, after all of these years, God has blessed him, and then he erupts in a song, which is not about really his baby. It's about another baby. The only part in this song that is explicitly about John the Baptist is the underlined section. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord and prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people and so forth and so on. The rest of it is all about another baby. It's about an another person. It's about Jesus himself. And you kind of go back through what's said here, you realize Jesus is the key to these things. When it says that God has visited and redeemed, God did not redeem his people through John, but through Jesus. When it says in verse 69 that he has raised up a horn, and a horn in Old Testament symbolism is a, is a sign of power. You look at two rams hitting each other, it's like the, 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 the horns are their power. It's talking about the power of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. John wasn't from the house of David. 
Jesus was. When he talks about deliverance from enemies, John did not deliver God's people from enemies. Jesus did. The center of the covenant is what Jesus came to do, fulfill what God had promised. And you fast forward to the end. Talks about the sunrise shall visit us from on high. I think that's an allusion to the morning star, which is about Jesus. Verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. An allusion to Isaiah chapter 9, which is about Jesus. So most of this is about Jesus. Most of this is about Jesus. Because in, okay, in the mega story of God's unbelievable, astounding mega story. The turning point, and all good stories have a turning point, the decisive, pivotal turning point, is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Which, because we're in the church and we're so familiar with it, we, we, we don't grasp the cosmic irony of it. <laughs> the cosmic irony of it. You know, in all of, most of, the stories that we know, movies or literature in which Good wins over evil. Typically, the bad guy always wins. Or, excuse me, bad guy always dies, right? So in the, in the epic mega story of the Star Wars series, one of the big turning points and my favorite part in the whole collection is when Darth Vader, who has just fought with Luke, and Luke is getting ready to die. Actually, I back up. I got that scene wrong. Um, first they were fighting, and then the emperor is fighting with, with Luke. And there's a sense of compassion that rises up in, in Anakin Skywalker's heart, or Darth Vader's heart. And he changes his focus from Luke to the evil emperor, I still remember, and grabs him by the neck and throws him into the abyss. Bad guy dies. Love that part. I think I got some of that movie wrong, by the way, what I just said. So those of you who are, who are uh, Star Wars scholars... You don't need to tell me. I already know. <laughs> All right. Or uh, Gladiator, right? Decisive turning point is when Maximus kills Commodus and, and offers Rome back to the Republic, to the Senate. Uh, turning point, bad guy dies. But in the grand and mega story of, of, of God, The evil forces and powers, both human and spiritual, gather together against the Holy One of Israel, the rightful king of all creation. They rise up and they slay the good guy. The good guy dies. But in doing so, unwittingly destroy themselves because with the offering of a perfect sacrifice, the power and the prison and the slavery of sin was broken and so was death. That's the centerpiece for us, and always has been, is by the blood of the Lamb that we have conquered. That's the center. But I want you to notice that when I wrote out the principle, um, God's mega story uh, centers on Jesus and results in total deliverance. Total means everything. And this is where I think some Christians are rather thin or small in their understanding of what Christ came to do. We tend to think of uh, what Jesus did on the cross as being individually for me. Jesus died for me for my sins so that I could go to heaven after I die. I want to say, yes. Uh, I, I suppose you should say, yes, but it's, it's so much larger 
Then Jesus came to save me individually from my sin so that I could be in heaven after I die. That's just salvation in the individualistic and spiritual sense. But he came to save everything, to restore everything, to deliver everything. And that bubbles to light in this statement of, of, of this song. He's talking about um, the house of his servant David. That connection to the Old Testament is a political statement. A king reigning on the earth. He talks about um, salvation from our enemies, both human and spiritual. Revelation 19, the enemies of God, both in terms of the spirit, 19 and 20, spiritual and physical, are dealt with by Christ. We see the, the spiritual in the sense of those sitting in darkness, that is the moral darkness, they're lost. That is our, our spiritual, moral lostness. The idea being that I don't care what kind of descriptive word you want to use. Jesus came to deliver us and to deliver all of it. Um, environmental, emotional, physical, material, political, communal, individual, the whole thing. Everything. That's the whole last three chapters of the book of Revelation. That means that we need to remember that the final solution for us, the final solution for planet Earth, the final solution for humanity is, is, is the deliverance that Christ himself can only bring. So listen, um, recognize the fact that Kaiser ultimately cannot save you, neither can Sutter, and neither can North Bay. Are we thankful for medical, modern medicine? Absolutely. But ultimately, it will not save your life. Politically, we need to make sure our hope is in the right place and not in the wrong places. It doesn't make a difference which party's in charge, Republican or Democratic. At the end of the day, they're both sinful and they're populated by sinful people. They will not save our country. Um, when, it, when it comes to your soul, the church will not save your soul because churches have sinful people led by other sinful people. Cannot save your soul. There's only one that can save you in every way possible, and that is Christ. He's the only one who will fix politics. He's the only one who's going to fix your emotions when he wipes every tear from your eye. He's the only one who's ultimately going to fix your body when he raises you from the dead. And he's the only one who can fix a decaying, frustrated creation when he resurrects it. So it all centers on him, and I'm simply pointing out that this deliverance is total. And then finally, and I'm just close with this, um, in terms of us, what also comes to light in this story is that God's great mega narrative unfolds through his broken but willing servants. 
his broken but willing servants. Somehow God saves us and he uses us to do it. Not in the same way Jesus did, but isn't that amazing? He like made us objects of his love, then he, then he drafts us into this great story and uses us to save each other and to draw our attention to what Christ has done and, and where we're headed. And as I said, broken, broken, broken people, you go all the way back and you just realize that one of, the, one of the most refreshing things about the whole Bible is it paints people in real colors. It doesn't mythologize them. Noah, on at least one occasion, he had a substance abuse issue. Um, Abraham, some integrity issues there, couldn't tell the truth, and yet God used him and promised amazing things through him. Moses, a bit of an anger problem, at least one time. David, had a bit of a lust problem. Jeremiah had a bit of a complaining problem. Zechariah, the father of, of, of John in this story, had a bit of a doubting problem, right? He didn't believe God at first. And yet he was a willing servant of the Lord, and God used him in a remarkable way in his grand story. And here's the takeaway from it. While your name and mine will never be in the Bible, it will be eternally recorded in the annals of redemptive history. Because your life, your time, your breath, your service, your gifts are not without their eternal purpose. It's God is, is, is drafting this mega story through the work of our lives as we willingly submit to our King, our Lord Jesus. As we commit ourselves to his grand story. I, I like the way that um, Horton says it. He says, instead of God being a supporting actor in our life story, we become part of the cast that the Spirit is recruiting for God's drama. The Christian faith is first and foremost an unfolding drama. We're part of that story. So what are we supposed to do with these? This is the mega story and three pieces of it. I think the most urgent thing for us, every one of us, the starting point is, do you believe it? Because this, this story has power. In the same way that the lies of communist meta-narrative had power over people's lives in the same way, way that the liberal democracy has power in people's lives. Well, we have the mega story, and it should inhabit us in a, in a way that colors the way we see everything, the future and people, the way we understand ourselves. It ought to move us and, and drive us to the end of God's story. So it has to take root here. That's, Part of what worship is about is telling the story over and over and over again so that, so that we believe the right story and not all the wrong stories. And as we, as we do that, that story takes shape in our lives. And if you want to know, and I've had people from time to time ask me, hey, how do, how do, I, how do I serve Christ? I think the best answer, honestly, if you're looking for a place to serve Christ, is, you know what, start right where you are and with what you're currently doing. Just simply following, trusting, honoring, testifying to Jesus in the place he's already put you with doing the things you're already doing is always the starting point. And then God will open the doors and he will lead you. Because what? He's, like, he's in control. He's sovereign. He's not going to leave you in, a, in, a, in some kind of a vacuous space out there not knowing where to go. Just, just serve him humbly from the heart, honoring him with your lips and life. And you know what? You're going to have taken your place in the fabric of this great story. And someday, someday, 
we'll get to see the conclusion when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. We were not on the wrong side of history. We were on the right side of history. God's history, God's story, God's meta-narrative. I pray it just takes roots in us, our hearts. Gracious God, may that be the case for us. Drive it deep into our motivational life, deep into our emotional life, deep into our volitional life, deep into our understanding and our knowledge and our hearts and our affections that we may believe, live, trust, and move in this story. And we pray this in the name of our great King, who will deliver us in total. Amen.